Good afternoon, everybody. Chief Patrol Agent Ryan Landrum coming to you with another WIN podcast from the U.S. Border Patrol Academy in Artesia, New Mexico. Here in the U.S. Border Patrol, we have roughly 22 or 23 sectors that, that uh, folks have command of. Uh, every person is titled the Chief Patrol Agent. However, in some sectors uh, are considered larger scope, larger complexity than others. Some of those sectors are like San Diego, Tucson, El Paso, the Rio Grande Valley, and then some sectors after that as they descend down in terms of size, uh, AOR or area of responsibility, manpower on staff, etc. Today, I had the opportunity to introduce to you Chief Patrol Agent John Modlin from the Tucson sector, arguably uh, one of the biggest, if not the biggest uh, sector that is on the Southwest border and the entire United States Border Patrol. Chief Modlin, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Chief. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. So. Today, you are traveling into Artesia, New Mexico from Tucson, specifically to mentor session 1196 with the U.S. Border Patrol Basic Academy. Um, that holds some significance to you, why? Well, because when I started in the Border Patrol in 1995, I was assigned to class 296. So this class is 900, exactly 900 past my class. So if I would have told you in 1995, you'd still be here 900 classes later, would you believe me? No, because in that period of time, it had been basically 75 years to get to 296 classes. And now, you know, we've got 90 classes, 27 years or 900 classes, 27 years later. Yeah, it's it, it's a, it's an important distinction for us as we approach our centennial. Uh, as you know, in May of 2024, we will reach 100 years. And you kind of chronicled the first 70, the, the growth uh, pattern of the first 75 or so years and even maybe even going in a little more to, to the last, say, 10 to 15 years, the, the growth has been so exponential that folks are, are eclipsing 900, 1,000 classes later from when they EOD or entered on duty uh, in their basic sessions uh, to what, they're, what we're EODing today in, in basic sessions. So right now, for context, uh, we're about to enter on duty class 1,206 or 1206, so 04 and 05 were the latest two classes on deck, and 06 is on their way uh, right now. So um, congratulations for that. Um, so 900 classes later, but it all kind of has to start somewhere. So it says here you EOD'd in, with the U.S. Border Patrol on December 10th of 1995 as a member of Academy Class Session 296. You were first signed to the Chula Vista Border Patrol Station in the San Diego sector. We've had several guests here that, that have kind of all started their careers um, in the San Diego sector. It was a huge push back then. This is kind of the center of gravity in the mid to late 90s. Um, much of the migrant traffic that we were experiencing was traversing through that particular corridor. And as such, just as we do over time, we started focusing the deployment of new resources, human capital, uh, to the Southern California area. So maybe describe for me your experiences in Chula Vista circa 95 and, and kind of what, what that uh, traffic pattern looked like against maybe what it is today a little bit. Absolutely. So when, when I arrived in Chula Vista in, in 1995, I certainly had no concept of what, what I was coming into. Um, you know, uh, migration certainly was not in the news the way it is now. Um, I don't think it was in the public um, the public sort of thought it the way it is now. So so I went down there really not fully understanding what, what I was going to encounter. And, um, you know, that station covered about seven miles of border and it was not uncommon, um, 
you know, to, to make a thousand apprehensions in a day in that station. You know, um, I think that that year, 95, 96, might have been about a, a million and a half apprehensions across the southwest border, with a um, vast majority of them being in that Chula Vista, Brownfield, Imperial Beach area right there in sort of the very west coast of Florida, of uh, California. Yeah. So, again, we've talked about this before, the context. Uh, I think even back then, correct me if I'm wrong, we're talking about 15 land miles. More or less, right? So at the time, I believe uh, Imperial Beach, aka IB, Chu, Chula Vista, and, and Brownfield each had about five miles or so. Is that is that what it was back then? Yes, yeah, so yeah. Chula Vista had seven miles. Okay. Seven miles of, of border. Right. So all, all the way going up into the Otay Mountain uh, area uh, was kind of where those three stations operated. In the bulk of all the apprehensions in those years in the mid 90s and late 90s uh, were in those 15, 20 miles of border. Yeah, and, and you know, so when I got there, my, my star number, right, that my radio call sign was up in the high 400s, probably 496 or something like that. So I don't know how many agents were at the station, but there were hundreds of agents, um, you know, probably at least 400 or so for those seven miles of border. Wow. Yeah, that, that's incredible. Um, so yeah, for, for, for those that, that are listening in that may not be familiar, star number is uh, the number that uh, the radio operator or your peers can use to identify you without saying, you know, Fort Joy and John Modlin, you know, report back to base kind of thing. They can just uh, identify you by a, a unique star number. Everybody knows your name, it almost becomes your name. <laughs> uh, and that's how we uh, kind of communicate with each other uh, on, a, on a service radio for both brevity and, and privacy uh, speaking uh, purposes. Um, so from there, you go from Southern California, that's uh, one coast, then you head up to uh, the Great Lakes area of Michigan. This is where you uh, essentially, for lack of a better word, uh, promote to what we called a senior patrol agent, right? Uh, that position description or that position essentially no longer exists, but this was a big deal back in the day. When I came in a few years later from you, I came in in 2000, and obviously, senior patrol agent was all the rage, and that's what you were trying to compete for, literally, uh, by doing details, whatever it might be. You were trying to earn the opportunity to become a senior. Uh, kind of characterize both for me what the, your duties as a, as a senior was, and also uh, what that meant for Port Huron uh, in the Detroit sector. Sure. So, and this, you know, it's worth framing this, too. This is right in the um, sort of right after September 11th. So September 11th had happened, and um, and shortly thereafter, I think there was a, a recognition that the northern border was fairly wide open in terms of the, the deployment of agents up there. There were only a couple hundred agents to cover the entire the entire northern border versus, you know, just hundreds of agents covering seven miles down in, in, in where I was in California. So, um, so there was a push to get more agents to the northern border. Um, some senior patrol agent positions had opened up up there, and so I was selected for one of those. And basically, a, a senior agent was an agent that was not a supervisory agent, but was seen as an agent that would take more responsibility and sort of um, mentor younger agents. If there was an incident in the field, they would sort of de facto become the person that would, would handle that incident until supervisors could get there. So it's kind of someone that could be counted on both by people above and and, um, and younger agents to sort of guide them along and sort of take care of situations until um, actual formal supervision could get on scene. Do you remember how many agents total nationally were uh, employed by the U.S. Border Patrol when you became a senior circa 2009? I would say probably roughly 
6,000? 6, 6,000, right? So it's, 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 it's perfect context because we were in an environment of 6,000 agents uh, where we had time and space to, to do things like informal mentorship, uh, kind of ask uh, different agents or senior agents to, to do more, um, to include things like mentoring, acting, supervising, board tuition when there wasn't mm -hmm. one available, those types of things. Um, for context for the listener, we're at hovering at about 19,300 border patrol agents today. So 20 you know, plus years later, uh, we're looking at around 19,000, 20,000 border patrol agents uh, on, on deck. And the opportunities, I know by the way, you know, you're talking a couple hundred border patrol agents on the northern border then, now we're congressionally mandated to the tune of somewhere around 2250, 2250 yeah. uh, agents to, to uh, patrol uh, the northern border. Um, that number comes off the top of our bottom line TO, right? Our table of organization. So if we're congressionally appropriated for 19,000, let's just call it whole numbers, 19,500 agents, then 2250 come right off the top and are assigned to the northern border. We still have to man the southern border, which is where the, the bulk of the migration traffic is today. We still have a coastal border where we have New Orleans, Miami, Puerto Rico. We'll talk a little bit about Miami in a little bit, but uh, it's all it's all relative to the politics you kind of spoke of uh, previously as it relates to the San Diego traffic. Mm -hmm. But um, it's really good context for the listener who may not be familiar. Um, can you just describe for me, maybe if there's a uh, a younger border patrol agent listening, what did you have to do to become a senior? So it was a competitive process. So how did what what, what was the the process like to to actually compete for a senior patrol agent? Yeah, so, so it was a competitive process. And at the time um, when these positions came open, uh, somebody, I don't know who, someone in the uh, administrative staff, I guess, would print out a job announcement and uh, punch two holes in it and put it on what they call the hot board at the front of the muster room um, where, you know, um, sort of the, the most recent intel and information would be, but then also these job announcements would be in a, in a, a similar uh, situation off to the side. And it was a challenge because more than once, um, you know, a job announcement would be printed off and somebody would decide that yeah. their chances were better if they were the only one that knew of that job announcement and may just tear it off of there and, and take it home. The shenanigans. Um, yes. So, um, so it, it was a competitive process. Um, you know, my, my, I don't recall, um, I don't recall an interview for it. I think it was mostly based off of, um, off of resume. Okay. Yeah. And at the time, again, great context for that newer agent, what was the GS level? So the GS level for seniors was GS 11. 11. So yeah, agents were nines unless they became a senior patrol agent would be a GS 11. Right, so you can promote the senior or sue. Could you go from a GS 9 agent to a GS 12 supervisor? I don't believe you could. Yeah, so times have changed, right? Yeah. So not only have we you know, bumped up the, the, the baseline GS level for a border patrol agent to a GS 12, which formerly was uh, supervisory border patrol agent, um, we've kind of also done away with the senior patrol agent based on a litany of issues related to, you know, level setting that entire deck. Yep. Uh, so su super interesting. It's, in 2002, so you, your report here on uh, relatively briefly as it, as it relates to that, and you promote to that actual supervisory border patrol agent. So essentially what I was trying to characterize is um, the pathway from to supervisor at the time essentially was through the senior patrol agent. And that's what you did there in the same station for mm -hmm. your eyes, is that right? Yes, yeah, that, that's exactly right. 
I also look at at time. So um, if you if you're you know doing the math, you start in 1995 and you promote to a first line supervisor in 2005. You're now a two star SES chief patrol agent mm -hmm. um, within 20 years from that from that date. But it seems like uh, there's a there's a gap between being a board patrol agent and a supervisor, as if you took time to be a board patrol agent. You took time to be that senior, and you took time to be a supervisor. Is that true? Yeah, so I think that is very true. And, and one of the things I found, you know, when I got up to Port Huron, uh, it, was a, it was a relatively small station. Um, and where I had come from in Chula Vista, there was a prosecutions unit. So, you know, when, when, when we made an arrest, and it was either going to be, um, you know, someone who, say, a previously removed aggravated felon that was back in the United States, you know, um, other than our regular just arrest report, we didn't do anything with that prosecution. It went off to the prosecution unit who handled it. And when I got up north, it was the first time I found myself breaking out sort of the blue immigration law books that we had from the academy and some of these other books. And we were really struggling, me and the other agents up there, sometimes to even figure out what someone's status was because it was so complicated, some of the, some of the issues we were dealing with. And we also had no prosecution unit or anything like that. So um, one of the things that I recognized very quickly is I was not willing to supervise people in something that I didn't completely understand. So, you know, I recognized that being a supervisor there would mean I would have to sign off on very complex um, smuggling cases and, and different things. And to me, I wanted to really understand that well. So I spent the first few years there really um, immersing myself in, in casework in Port Huron. And I had some great um, agents that worked with me that were um, great mentors as well in that sort of casework and um, and really walked me through it because I, I really did not know. I just came from a place, again, where regular line agents didn't do that work, you know? And um, so I, I didn't have that experience. And so it took me a couple of years up there to um, to really learn it and get to a point where I was comfortable enough to say, at this point, I'm okay supervising someone who's doing this very complex casework. Right. It's it's a great point. I talk to academy classes. I talk to uh, mentees as well. I think you just spoke literally to 1196 about this kind of thematic. Uh, don't be afraid to fall in love with the process of, of developing as a leader. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, that may mean spending a little extra time in, in what we would kind of characterize as that that initial stage of leadership between being a senior and a supervisory board of persuasion where you're okay with spending time to, to be a subject matter expert, to uh, sign up on these types of packets, to uh, stand in front of troops and know what you're doing. Right? Yeah. Um, so that, that, that's really interesting. And oh, by the way, it didn't seem to hurt you at all. You're now the chief of Tucson, right? So yes. um, time isn't the only factor. Right, becoming a subject matter expert, becoming uh, good at, at what you do, uh, is equally important. Because as I'm sure we'll talk about, the higher you get, uh, the more it becomes important. Um, so from there, you do that for uh, two, maybe three years in Port Huron, and uh, like many of us that we've talked to uh, in the course of the Win Podcast, uh, you get a call from headquarters. In 2008, you uh, you then promote to what we call an operations officer. In, uh, in operations and headquarters. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so, so I was fortunate enough, I went up there um, to work in what at that point was called the Northern and Coastal Border Operations Division. At that point, there were two separate divisions, operation divisions, one for the Southwest border, one for the Northern and Coastal. 
And I was also fortunate um, to land within that division in an area that was called the strategic planning cell. So, um, you know, what I was basically looking at was sector chiefs would call, and for instance, a sector chief on the northern border, maybe Spokane, would call about um, air smuggling. You know, they were using um, sort of kit-built helicopters to, to, to um, sling load large amounts of marijuana across the border, drop them off, and go back. And, and so, you know, there were issues that they needed help with that they couldn't solve just organically with sector resources. So they sort of pushed that up to us in the strategic planning cell, and we would put together um, whatever solution we could. And so it was a great time. The other thing that I did up there as well was um, I was also answering all of the GAO inquiries for the, the northern and coastal border. So um, got a lot of experience um, talking to folks that were recording everything you're saying and are then going to present it back to Congress and say, this is why the Border Patrol is doing this or this is why the Border Patrol is doing that. So it was it was an honor to be able to speak for the U.S. Border Patrol yeah. and obviously um, humbling to be given that that um, ability as well, because there is there's a lot of liability that comes with that. And it, I think it was at an age, too, where we were, you know, at this point, uh, Chief David Aguilar was the chief of the patrol. Ron Colburn was the, the deputy chief. And and the patrol, at least in, in my very limited vision of it then, especially dealing with those GAO audits, had really switched from. Um, talking to GAO auditors basically in anecdotal stories okay. when they asked, hey, how do you know this is successful? How do you know this is successful? We would just, in the past, just sort of tell anecdotal stories. And then we moved to um, very sort of qualitative and quantitative um, descriptions. This is how we know checkpoints are effective. This is how we know this works. Um, and so I, I was really, again, just honored to be, to be part of that. Yeah, so, and that's that's both as an ops officer and assistant chief. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting. And everybody's experience is generally different as it relates to, to headquarters. And uh, I obviously have been at headquarters twice. And I, I strongly uh, recommend emerging leaders uh, do a tour, at least one tour in the Beltway. It's, it's organizationally uh, almost required at this point. So that's one issue. But apart and aside from that, uh, the growth and development you get, both in terms of process, strategy, leader development, exposure to current leaders, right, wrong, or indifferent, doesn't really matter. You're exposed to the way the folks are leading at the national level um, is invaluable. Uh, I cannot say enough about what what you get to do at headquarters if you're willing to fall in love with the process yes. of doing what's asked of you. Uh, did you sign up to do uh, government accountability office audits? Absolutely not. Right. No. But but you're just commenting right now that it probably arguably or inarguably makes you a better chief today. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And the other thing, you know, to your point about going up there and seeing things, the one thing that I took from it immediately um, was recognizing what the patrol fights for and what they don't fight for. You know, when, when you're up there at headquarters, you see things and realize that, um, you know, we're not going to die on every hill, you know, and so you, you get a little bit of that political savvy, you know, maybe you don't get to exercise it so much in the, in the operation officer or the, the assistant chief position, but you certainly see it, you know, whether it's the chief of the patrol, whether it's a division chief, um, you know, one of the things that was going on up there when I was up there was the branding of the boats, wow. you know, and so the, the, the boats on the southern border kept the border patrol name on them, the, the, the boats on the northern border did not. And, you know, had I not been up there, I probably would not have understood that process, sort of why that happened the way it did, you know. 
Um, and to your point, you know, I also had a tremendous amount of, uh, of interaction with Aaron Ream because Aaron Ream was involved with um, a lot of the a lot of the northern and, and coastal border um, strategies, um, which was very interesting because the relationship with with Aaron Marine was still developing. I think you know we were developing still, on the heels of this uh, merger. Yes, essentially. they're yeah, creating Air Marine Number One because yes. Border Patrol used to own its own pilots and vessel commanders, etc. Now, in 2003, 2004, we started to go into a new organization of CBP, and you're now six, seven years on the heels of that, which you know we kind of reap the benefits of it now. But you were kind of in the dogfights of, of you know we're going to keep that patch, we're going to keep our Border Patrol you know vessel names, etc. Yes. Oh yeah. In fact, one of the first things that I was handed was a a um, air strategy that was um, that was in draft, um, and it had no coordination with air and marine you know so it was interesting to me i mean i get it it's all the border and and you know we're responsible for it um however you know we've got these subject matter experts that are down the hall that probably could shine some light on this on this strategy you know and make it better which which was the goal of it so yeah i certainly learned um the value of those those intergovernmental partnerships up there Mm -hmm. And then just just everything else, how the patrol works, how it functions, why we put resources where we do. So, like you, I, I could not recommend it more to to agents. I think it's it's absolutely critical. And and the other side of it too that comes up is, you know, at, when you're sitting in headquarters as an assistant chief, it's very easy to just send an RFI out to the sectors and say, hey, I need to know every device you have, whatever this type of device is, mm-hmm. how many hours does it have on it right now. And and the thing that's not understood, unless you've then also been a patrol agent in charge, yeah. is that now somebody has to go into the armory and look at every single thing. And, and before you know it, that's hundreds of hours, right. you know, for something that could have been discovered a different way. Right. Um, so there's there's value in that aspect of it as well, recognizing that if you're not careful, you can really negatively impact operations just by what you're asking of, of the field from headquarters yeah. instead of where we should be, which is headquarters supporting the field. Yeah. It's very uh, apropos that, that you mentioned that patrol agent in charge position because um, you would get the chance to serve as a patrol agent in charge or a PAIC directly after your tenure there at headquarters. Um, talk to him a little bit about um, you now hitting a third coast and you going down to the Miami sector uh, and, and what that means both in terms of the experience you gained at headquarters, how did it make you a better PAIC and vice versa? And just kind of characterize for me the the uh, the coastal environment as it relates to South Florida. Yeah, so you know one of the things I found when I was in the, the northern coastal border um, was at some point I was asked to, to help write a strategy for the the coastal threat, and I thought, what coastal threat are we talking about? I'd never heard this before, and uh, and of course what what was being talked about really was the. Um, the use of the Bahamas by smuggling organizations to launch into the United States. That's what, that's what sort of I was put on um, to see if I could create a plan to mitigate that. And, and that's when I became you know, wildly aware of Miami sector and the challenges it faced and how close the Bahamas sit to um, particularly to West Palm Beach. And so at some point, um, the, the patrol agent charge position in West Palm Beach became vacant. Uh, I applied for it, interviewed for it and was selected, thankfully. And, you know, interestingly, before I tell you too much about Miami sector, um, I will tell you that as a GS-14 assistant chief in headquarters, um, when I when I, when I I was promoted to that position, 
some of my peers had less than positive things to say. And, and there was a lot of focus on sort of, um, it's a step down, sort of in quotes is what I was being told because I was a GS-14 assistant chief and why would I become a GS-13 patrol agent in charge? And, um, you know, and I expressed to a lot of them that, hey, this is a, this is a command position. You know, this is, I'm going to be in charge of this station and I'm going to have the ability to really set the operational tempo. Of course, the chief of the sector will determine the priorities, but I will set the tempo and I will determine how we execute on, on the chief's priorities. And I couldn't imagine a more, um, you know, a, to me, a better position in the patrol, right? A, a position that was more important, um, you know, more significant, more challenging. And um, and also, you know, as I looked at the, the Bahamas and, and West Palm, you know, and, and sort of the, the, the amount of activity that was going across there. Um, you know, I, I couldn't have been happier to, to, to get to that position. So, um, so I was selected for the position and, and uh, moved out to West Palm Beach. Um, and it was, it was a great station, very small station um, when I got there, you know, maybe I remember 15 or 20 agents or something in there. Um, so small station pack, very different than, you know, in Tucson sector, we have some GS-15 packs, you know, who have two, uh, two deputy packs, they have a whole bunch of FOSs and watch commanders and supervisors and, and you know, tremendous amounts of, of staff and support. Um, small station pack, you do everything. You know, you may give muster one shift because there's there's no one else on duty. There, there was no DPAC when I was there. It was just uh, supervisors and myself. Um, when things came up throughout the year, self-inspection process, things like that. Um, you know, that was all stuff that I participated in. It didn't come to me with a bow on it and I signed off on it, I participated in it. If, if the fire marshal came to inspect the building, I walked him through the building, you know, um, did all the, all the public relations stuff for the station as well. So um, really great experience, very challenging environment because it, it is truly a, a 360 degree threat vector in that sector um, where, you know, there are, um, there are smugglers that are coming in with both migrants and narcotics. There are migrants and narcotics that have left the Southwest border that have Florida as a destination. So there's stuff literally moving in every direction. You know, we know there's um, narcotics that certainly come into the Keys in South Florida, and then they move up the 95 corridor up into the United States. Right. There's money that's coming back down South to, um, you know, so, um, there's just a tremendous amount to be done with very few agents. Um, so as you can imagine, um, oh, and also really no infrastructure. In terms of what we talk about infrastructure, when we talk about um, sensors and, and uh, camera towers, obviously none of that exists in Florida. So, um, so we became very heavily reliant on our partners and on intelligence. It really becomes... Um, using intel as best you can to best deploy the personnel that we have, the very limited personnel we have, and when we can't be there, to have our partners be there. I think one of the interesting things for me for PIC also is, you know, you kind of at this point probably have aspirations of upper commands, um, but in, this was true for me, so I don't know if it was true for you, but I also realized as a patrol agent in charge, I was at Rio Grande City, but that was probably the last time I was going to have that kind of connectivity to the workforce. Mm -hmm. You know, you start going to sector jobs, HQ jobs, chief patrol agent jobs. Um, yes, you're the leader, but you don't get to interact with uh, the men and women actually performing the mission every day. And you kind of realize that that's the last time 
where you actually have that kind of direct connectivity. You feel the same way? Yeah, so I couldn't agree more, especially in a place like West Palm Beach. You know, um, you know, I, I had the, the privilege of going out with agents when they were doing highway operations, when when there were landings, you know, whenever there was stuff going on, when there was people being processed in, in the, um, you know, in our detention area, you know, all those things. Um, I, I had a, a lot of, I had the ability at least to have my hands in, you know, um, as, as the pack, you know, there, there's work that you can't control, there's work you can, and a lot of times you can say, hey, you know what, I'm gonna go spend an hour out and I'm just gonna go through the marinas, I'm gonna talk to agents, I'm gonna talk to the public, uh, that sort of thing. And to your point, very difficult as it is, you know, now um, in Tucson, you know, if I wanna get out into the field, we have to schedule it generally, and uh, and usually it'll be like, okay, here comes here comes the old guy to ride the ATV for an hour, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very different, and I think you're 100% right, and it's, it's not, um, I don't think it's what any of us got into this to do. You know, um, I, I think this this type of career, this calling um, is because we do, we do crave the action of it. You know, we do want to, we do want to be active. We want to be mobile. We want to um, make the arrests, you know, uh, do those things. And, and um, you know, and then at some point, uh, some of us find ourselves behind the desk. Yeah, that's right. And, and you, and you feel it. When that BIC nexus, you know, that's, that's, that's the end of that action life that, that we once uh, kind of craved. So all good things must come to an end. It's the choice you're in charge. Yes. You go on to sector staff in 2012 uh, there in Miami as well. Promote to uh, the position of assistant chief patrol agent. Uh, just like every other sector in Miami also has assistant chief, chief patrol agents. Much fewer or many fewer mm -hmm. than, than, yes. than what you may have now. Yes. But uh, which also kind of lends itself to uh, continuing to fall in love with the process and becoming really really good at your job so kind of characterize those three years as an assistant chief there there in miami yeah so change. um yeah, so, so when i got there um you know i was given oversight of our three southern stations so it was west palm beach um dania beach and marathon down in the keys and our intelligence unit and our um what we call the time the mobile interdiction unit basically like an srt okay. sort of unit um that was certainly where most of the action was. The other assistant chiefs, I think there were two of them at the time, three of them, um, oversaw stations, like one station apiece, and, and programs. So it was just sort of laid out a little differently. And, um, and I loved the work. I had the opportunity to, um, to bring the SRT or, or MI, MIU to um, the RNC and the DNC back in, in 2012. So um, in sort of a long history I, that I feel like I have of, being in places where I never expected I would be. Um, you know, I had the, the, the great opportunity to do that. Um, and also while I was in that assistant chief position, I, I applied for and was accepted to um, to attend the Army's Command and General Staff College out in, um, in Leavenworth. So um, that was a fantastic experience as well. So I spent um, the better part of a year there, I think 11 months out there, sort of a life-changing experience for sure. Yeah, absolutely. How do you, uh... So you do this as an assistant chief patrol agent. Um, how do you think it makes you better and more prepared for the follow-on job that you would eventually earn? So, um, so I think you know, one, you know, I'm still incredibly grateful to the patrol for allowing me to do that. At that time in my life, I was looking at um, a master's degree. You know, doing it doing it off to the side myself, and of course, it was going to mean a tremendous amount of time on weekends away from my family and just everything else that comes with it and the cost. And this was an opportunity to go to this school, 
um, spend 10 months with the DOD and the other interagency partners, and then um, also come out with a master's degree. Um, while I was there, I determined that I wanted a different master's degree. There were there were universities that were on, on the base as well. So, so I did the, the master's degree for the Army, which was the Master of Military Art and Science, and then um, also did a master's degree with Webster University um, in international relations. And so, you know, when I got back, I think the thing that had changed the most in me, um, you know, was the recognition of the necessity of partners and, and how to work with partners. And, and of course, I made some lifetime friends from there, um, you know, and, and that was in 2015, I believe. And um, so a lot of these, a lot of the soldiers that I was in this class with were, you know, 10 to 15 years in service, um, of which their last 10 had been at war. You know, so so these were, um, you know, soldiers that had incredible experiences, regardless of what their position was, whether they were infantry or armor or, you know, some sort of administrative position. There was just stuff to learn from from all of them. So, and I think I took a lot of great leadership lessons out of that as well. Obviously, we studied some of the great leaders of, of the world. And I know you went through one of the war colleges as well. And, and what was very interesting to me was, Yes, we had um, we had guest speakers come in, uh, you know, generals, very decorated generals. We also had guest speakers come in that were um, people that were like the, the head of the Red Cross. Yeah, I think the the um, you know CEOs of, of large companies came in and talked, and so we really got um, a lot of a lot of um, look look at leadership from a lot of different perspectives, not strictly from the military perspective. So. I think that the, the thing I got most out of it was those leadership lessons and then how to apply them to what we do. I love it. I, I shared a lot of those very same experiences and, and my appreciation for the uh, quality of American uh, that has dedicated their lives to defending our country. Uh, another huge takeaway for me uh, that I'll never forget and I greatly appreciate. I, I tell classes all the time. I'm sure you maybe commented this uh, to 1196 as well, but um, you made the mention of you add that to the list of places I never thought I'd be. Mm -hmm. I, I probably say that five times a day. <laughs> you know, yes. um, all I did, all I did was apply. Uh, I worked hard at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy. I became a Border Patrol agent, and then I uh, took on responsibilities uh, that were offered to me. Mm -hmm. Right. So I fell in love with you know the process of, of becoming a leader in the organization. Didn't say no to opportunities and. Uh, you know, it's taking me all over the world. It's taking me to the White House, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Uh, our experiences together mm -hmm. there. Uh, taking me you know, to achieve the virtual academy, a place I thought I'd never come back. <laughs> you know? And here we are. Um, so there's that. So you also, uh, in at some point, become uh, the get to promote to the deputy chief patrol agent of the Miami sector, which, again, deputy chief is, is uh, the number two in charge of the entire sector, right underneath the chief patrol agent. Mm -hmm. um, so you're... you're you're now the deputy. You've on the heels of a, of a war college. How does the environment change for you now? What, what is your calculus now? What, what are you thinking about for the future? You got pretty solid resume leading up to then. So now the, the light can start coming on. Like there's a there's a real future here for uh, command positions. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you know, interestingly, right? Because as we're talking about places we never thought we would be. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, starting out in Chula Vista, I didn't think I would ever be a supervisor mm -hmm. because. Certainly never the patrol agent in charge of a station, you know, I mean, our patrol agent in charge in, in, in Chula Vista um, was almost almost seemingly magical, you know, <laughs> sort of a person that I felt like I would never have that person's experiences. I couldn't do what that person did. 
Um, and yet here I am sitting in the number two position in, in Miami sector, you know? And so again, never thought I would do it. Um, and, and at the time, you know, it was unclear. My, my chief, um, you know, was getting close to uh, mandatory retirement. So then it suddenly occurred to me that um, there's 20 chiefs, yeah. there's 20 in the field, 20 chiefs, 20 field deputies. Yeah. And, you know, a certain portion of those deputies probably don't want to come to Miami just because of whatever family reasons or they, they want to be the chief where they're at, mm -hmm. or they just don't want to go past that position. Mm -hmm. And um, so then I realized, wow, this is actually attainable. Yeah. You know, this thing that um, is so much higher than, than I ever thought I would be is actually obtainable. And, and I will tell you that um, I did love the deputy position. I, I thought it was I thought it was a great position. I thought, um, you know, the deputy obviously handles most of the discipline and basically runs the staff there right. at Sector. Um, and and I, I just really enjoyed it. I, I, to your point earlier about sort of, you get to a point where you realize it may you may not put handcuffs on people ever again. Um, you know, it, it's almost that same thought is like as the chief, you know, a lot of times the chief spends a lot of time meeting with other agency heads and doing doing chief stuff. The deputy is really sort of making sure that the chief's priorities and vision is executed. And um, and I really, really enjoyed being in that position. So um, had I never left that, just like the patrol agent in charge position or the assistant chief position, I would have been perfectly fine. I, I, always, I already felt like I had Far surpassed my uh, my what I had envisioned as my terminal graded position in the patrol. <laughs> so, yeah, the uh, I I'm, I'm glad you said that because uh, I've I've commented on this before, and I, I you know tell anybody that asks uh, the deputy position specifically deputy patrol agent in charge and deputy chief patrol agent are uh, invaluable. I mean, you learn so much. You are the executor mm -hmm. of the vision of the chief. Um, so not only do you learn how to execute, but you also learn how to set a vision, <laughs> right? So uh, I, I did not get to hold the, the deputy chief patrol agent job permanently before I got the, the chief patrol agent, but I did have the opportunity to serve for Chief Gloria Chavez mm -hmm. in El Paso for, for a few months, as well as uh, uh, the deputy chief of operations. But uh, even in those acting capacities, um, the growth, the understanding of the organization you characterize as being at headquarters, uh, just exponential at the time. and. and I highly recommend. There's a couple of jobs you really shouldn't skip if you can help it. Uh, supervisory board treasurer, a deputy of some capacity is really, really important uh, to, to make yourself uh, the best potential leader possible. So I'm really glad you said that and uh, I couldn't agree more. So you, so you uh, talk about the possibility of attaining the chief patrol agent. Um, at the time, you know, after that, uh, your predecessor uh, retires uh, based on age. Mm -hmm. um, they convert that position to a senior executive service chief patrol agent in Miami. Is that right? So uh, not just entirely correct. After that. Yeah. So um, so it was still a GS fifteen chief um, when when I uh, was selected for that position. So and then I was the GS fifteen chief I think for about a year, um, and then there were five new um, SES chief positions, um, four of them on the northern border, and then, uh, or actually there, might, there may have been one down south, well, it might have been three up north, one down south, and anyway, Miami was one of the five. Right. And um, so then I had the um, you know un unenviable position of now hoping that I'd be selected for the position I was sitting in. And, and I was, fortunately, um, but it also made it fairly unique having gone from PAC to assistant chief to deputy chief, to chief twice in the same sector, five, 
five promotions in the yeah. same sector is fairly rare, as you know, in the uh, Absolutely, it is. Yeah. The, uh, the interesting, I, I like the context that you added with, with the SES piece. Um, over time, our, like, we, we characterized our front, our growth, uh, mm-hmm. especially in the last 10 to 15 years. Commensurate with that growth comes command positions uh, that align with the size and scope and complexity uh, of the sectors that we lead, the headquarters elements that are, that are out there, et cetera. Um, Chiefs, uh, Chief of the Border Patrol previously um, did a lot of work to uh, enhance our SES ranks to make it, again, commensurate, not only with the size and scope of the, of the organization, but align it also with our sister agencies, things like the field operations, uh, Office of Field Operations mm-hmm. and others. So really our large organizations require uh, a, a healthy staff of senior executives uh, to run these positions. So kudos to those chiefs mm-hmm. in the past who really uh, had a vision for enhancing the SES core of, of the U.S. Border Patrol and then you know having the willingness to, to look at a place like Miami and, and some other uh, some other places uh, in, in the country and bolstering them to SES to obviously you know attract and retain talent at those levels. So uh, just a bit of context of growth over time. It seems to be a, a theme you know right throughout this entire conversation. So a lot of good history for everybody listening. Um, so this is 2019-ish now. And you you were also asked to go. I think this is right before their promotion. Is that correct? The SES so, conversion. Yes. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Yep. So right as you're you're sitting in the GS15 Chief Patrol Agent of Miami, your phone rings. Um, it's headquarters. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a story. There's a moral there. Don't answer the 202 number. Yes. Uh, twice now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the the phone rings and they say, Hey, uh, Chief Modlin, we need you to come to headquarters and do a mm-hmm. a, a, a long term detail assignment here is uh, kind of one of the acting deputies of operations. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, so I will tell you, I, I don't believe long-term was ever mentioned. <laughs> I, I was believe, trying to I believe they it. just said, hey, you know, we need, we need to come up to headquarters for a also short a period of time. Story. Yes, and, uh, and, and so, you know, to, to your point earlier, I did, I said yes, you know, I, I do think that's one of the, um, one of the, the qualities that we need to have is to, is, is to be able to sacrifice when necessary, and so I did, you know, I certainly was, you know, no one looks forward to leaving their their family and their their sector. You know, um, but but so I, I went up there to um, to be the deputy, the chief, the deputy chief of operational programs. Yeah. So um, so I went up, and this was to put this in context. This was in nineteen going into twenty um, when there was um, sort of in the in the public knowledge the, the first real talk about caravans. Yeah. So this was the, the, a lot of caravans, large um, irregular migration surge. Um, and so, and, and we also had um, two very high profile deaths in custody of children. Um, and so, um, so I'd gone up and again, sort of not really, probably not really fully comprehending what I was getting involved in. Um, I thought that ops programs was really focused on ATVs and horses <laughs> and canines and uh, you know, SUASs, things like that. And then it turns out it also has a huge chunk of detention and prosecutions and, and those sort of things. And so um, I, I very quickly became sort of embroiled in, in all of that, our detention practices. Um, we were just starting at that point to, um, to utilize soft-sided facilities. Um, there's also a lot of programs um, coming out of Border Patrol headquarters as well to, to sort of uh, help with some of that some of that irregular migration. So um, very very challenging for me, quite honestly, sitting in Miami, 
Um, I was aware of a lot of the things going on in the southwest border, but not as aware as, aware as I need to be to go up there and now be in charge of all that, you know? So, um, so a little bit humbling from a leadership perspective, one of those situations where, and I think a lot of us face it, we come into a position and the people that we are now going to lead know more about yeah. the subject than we do. Yeah. So, you know, um, obviously I had to do that thing, which we have to do is sometimes be very humble and say, I really need you to explain this to me from A to B because I don't do this in Miami. Right. You know, this is not how we do things in Miami, but I know it's, it's how we do things here. Um, so a, a lot of drinking from the fire hose yeah. when I got up there. And um, again, in the, um, in the theme of uh, not knowing where you're going to end up, I think it was probably a month or two into my, what turned out to be 10 months at headquarters, um, to about a month or two in my tenure there, I was asked to, um, to go to the, to the White House um, for some meetings over in the West Wing um, and again, you know, this, this sort of, uh, you know, coming my background and where I came up in the patrol, never did I think I'd ever be in the West Wing of the White you House. You know. Yes. <laughs> and so, as you know, the very first time I was there, I met you yeah. and, uh, or didn't meet you, but ran right, into right, you right. in the White House. And, uh, you know, if there's ever a place you don't expect <laughs> to see someone, you know, it's in the White House. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I, I still remember clear as day, you had a suit on and, uh, and literally like the gears in my head ground to a halt because I realized like, I know him, yeah. but why is he here? Like, <laughs> what is going on? Like, why are we both in the White House? And it, yeah. took, it took a minute and then of course you and I talked and it made, it made sense to me. So, um, so yeah, that, that trip to DC, um, very educational for me. And then it ended with um, sort of the icing on the cake was um, me testifying before Congress as well. You know, So there were hearings about um, family separation, things like that, you know, um, different different pr uh, policies and, and processes that were taking place. And so I testified, in or I testified before um, one of the congressional committees about um, how we were securing the border. So, um, you know, again, another great experience in another place that I never would have thought I would ever find myself, which would be testifying before Congress yeah. or, or, you know, weekly in the, in the White House. Yeah, that was uh, quite robust times with uh, engagement with levels of government that we probably hadn't dealt with uh, previously as an organization. Um, we, you know, we've talked on the podcast a lot about the uh, how politically charged the the nature of the business that we do now is, and largely that started, you know, in the last five six years, where um, the issue of uh, border security is national security has become a hot button topic requiring us to go to the White House, requiring us to testify uh, on the Hill on you know, unpopular things, not just a state of the border, if you will, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. kind of briefing to, to Congress or, or congressional and Senate staffs and even members really. Um, so you, you get a get out of jail free card uh, after 10 months, uh, they ship you back to Miami and then you become converted. Yes, yes, so just within, within a month or two, Perhaps it was, it was very shortly after I got back to Miami. Um, Miami was uh, was converted to an SCS, and I was selected as the SCS chief in Miami. All right, so you you know you again sacrificed for the organization, and it paid off for you. You know, again, be fall in love with the process of, of doing what's what's required for national security. And good things will happen, right? You worked really hard in the position that you that you were asked to to serve in, and uh, things happen. 
Um, so how long did you do in uh, Miami as the chief, the SES chief, after you got back on the detail? It's <laughs> a loaded question. It is a loaded question. Yeah, so um, not not long enough. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I was in Miami, and I did what no one should ever do, which was declare when I got home from um, mm. from headquarters that, um, you know, that, hey, I'm done. Like, I, I went out, I served my time, um, but, you know, th that should be it. And then um, shortly after, and I can't remember the, the time, but I, I want to say it was within months. Um, you know, great. yeah, I was um, asked to go out and assist in Tucson sector. And Did they give so, you a time frame again or no? No, no. Yeah, Once no, again, no time. No, it, yeah, um, but but I was smarter about it this time, and I made sure that I was prepared, you know, and brought as much stuff as I could. Yeah. And um, and went out to Tucson sector to to assist there, and that also took 10 months. I was yeah. also there for, for 10 months as well. Yeah, I mean, I, you're kind of underplayed a little bit. Assist is one thing, but go serve as the acting chief. Yes. Uh, that's, a, that's a whole other thing, right? Yes. So you're now, you know, physically prepared is one thing in terms of gear, right? But the uh, preparation uh, that you've done, spending the last 10 or so months at headquarters has opened the aperture from your, so the learning curve, what I'm suggesting is, was much shorter. You know, had you gone from straight Miami chief over to Tucson, uh, there, there may have been a, a larger learning curve, but you're already kind of really in tune. <laughs> you, you're all the A, a to Z's of, of all the things which apply very, very squarely to Tucson in many cases. And the deaths you talk about were, were in El Paso, but it, that could have easily just as easily been Tucson. Yeah, uh, absolutely. There's litigation that kind of governs mm -hmm. how you treat minors and, and co which complicates uh, detention in Tucson. So suffice to say you're, you're very prepared professionally for the opportunity to go serve as the, the interim chief of the Tucson sector. Yeah, so so I think I, I was, I mean, you know, at least on paper. Sure. I think that that's a hard thing to say because, you know, as you pointed out earlier, Tucson is our, our largest sector in terms of personnel. Um, so, you know, you've got more than 3,000 agents there and you've got all the, uh, all the professional staff um, and just the most challenging operational environment I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I remember when I first got there and I was, I had a meeting with all the patrol agents in charge from the nine stations and um, they were all sort of doing what, what patrol agents do, <laughs> which was complain about why they couldn't do this here and why they couldn't do this here. And, and so I, I had said to them, basically, there's nothing you have here that no other sector has that, you know, this Swanton deals with this problem, you know, uh, Detroit deals with this problem, El Paso has this problem. What I think I've realized since then is that I don't know another sector that has all of those challenges to it, you know, in, in one sort of confined space. Um, and, you know, it, it, I was very fortunate. The other, the other part of this was that when I got on scene there, um, there was a very strong uh, staff there as well. You know, there, was, there were some major gaps, um, you know, myself being the, um, the, the acting chief, there was no deputy and there was no chief of operations, division chief of operations. So basically the two and the three positions were vacant as well, you know, so um, in a very sort of unorthodox move, yeah. um, you know, I had the, the um, patrol agent in charge from Nogales who I'd only met once and did, a, did a, maybe a four hour ride along with him, come up and act as the deputy. And then, um, a gentleman that I knew from Detroit who I had a tremendous amount of respect for. He was my supervisor when I was in Detroit. He was uh, working as a 14 in, in, uh, with the technology out there, had him act as the operations 
division chief of operations because um, one thing I knew is he just had an incredible motor on him, just yeah. no stopping him, you know? And so um, we, had, we had a lot of challenges ahead of us. Um, but then, and then the rest of that team was so well fleshed out with people that just great experience, um, you know, that, that just had just tremendous, tremendous um, competency in that, in that staff there. Um, and over that 10 months that I was there, I was able to fill a couple of the patrol agent in charge positions um, and, and fill a couple other key positions and um, was incredibly challenged. Every day was busy, you know, to give you an idea. The uh, fiscal year 18, 19, and 20, Tucson sector had about 60,000 apprehensions those years, each year. In uh, 21, when I got there, there was 190,000 apprehensions. So we had tripled the apprehensions in a single year. Um, so with that came, you know, some a lot of unaccompanied children. So we opened a soft-sided facility um, to, to have children stay there instead of in our regular, um, you know, short-term holding areas. So um, there were a whole host of challenges that, again, I was not dealing with back in Miami sector, but um, a, a fantastic experience. And those those 10 months that I was acting as chief there um, will definitely stick in my mind as some of the most um, challenging and rewarding yeah. times uh, in the patrol. That's awesome. Um, so you're acting and that comes to an end. You go back to Miami, yep. 202 rings again. Yes. <laughs> so 202 rings again very shortly after I get back to Miami. Yeah. Um, probably again after announcing to the family <laughs> that, hey, I'm done with this travel and yeah. stuff, we're good. Um, so yeah, so then the call comes um, that, you know, I'm now going to be the chief of Tucson sector. Um, so, you know, big big upheaval with that, of course, you know, um, I, I came out first, my family came out once, the, uh, once we were like halfway through the school year. Um, the good news is I was able to land in that, you know, in the largest sector in terms of personnel. Um, with 10 months of experience already under me. So I already knew everybody. Um, you know, I built, I think, a lot of trust in those relationships. Mm -hmm. I really found the uh, the people that were sort of the, the very high performers, you know, and sort of knew who that team was. Um, and, and we had really done some great stuff. So I, I think, um, you know, I, I felt like I was welcomed back there, you know, where I think the first time when I was there in the acting role, there was naturally a little bit of suspicion and hesitancy um, about sort of what my intent was and, and you know how my my priorities would affect the uh, the way Tucson sector was running. Um, so now again, you know, it, it's a um, it's an honor, obviously, to, to run a sector that size. You know, it's an honor to be a, 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 any sector chief. Certainly, an honor to be a patrol agent charge to, to do any any leadership position in this organization. Um, but it, it's it's honestly humbling. Every day I, I pull up to that, um, to our sector headquarters, you know, and, and the gate opens and, you know, we've got that tremendous sector um, compound with all the buildings on it. And I see the, the sector headquarters building and I just think, you know, this is, again, something I thought I would never be able to achieve. Right. Awesome. So we've come to the moment in our podcast where I like to, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, your promotion to chief of Tucson um, as, as the chief, right? and turn the table over to you for an opportunity to uh, very concretely talk about maybe the two, three, four things that are important to you now, since this is the uh, What's Important Now podcast, maybe give you the opportunity in Florida to, to speak to audiences about what's important to you now. Sure, thanks. Yeah, so um, there's, there's so much here 
um, that, that I can cover. I think first and foremost, talk about one of the things that, um, that, that I'm most passionate about. And it is um, trying to get agents and, and the public to recognize what it is we do and, and what, what our mission is. And, you know, our mission is to secure the border ultimately. Um, you know, it's not an immigration mission. It's not any of these other missions that seem to um, seem to creep in. And, and we seem to get painted with that brush, you know, um, and, you know, there shouldn't be sides to border security. You know, um, people can have their their thoughts about uh, immigration and, you know, how much immigration is um, is good, you know, all, all those things, you know, however they want to quantify that. Um, but our role is to interdict things that are crossing the border, to protect the country, um, you know, and to make sure that we're aware of what comes into the country. So I think one of the biggest challenges we have now, as you know, and, and certainly everyone, everyone in the agency recognizes, is how do we secure that border while we're in this role that we really were not built for, which is the, the caring and feeding role and, and getting caught up in a lot of other things. And, you know, I think the Border Patrol has made some great strides recently in the processing coordinators and some contract coordinators and different things to get Border Patrol agents back to what it is we're built for, um, which is to secure the border and, and um, you know, just do that. And the other part of it, too, you know, is, as I, I explain to agents all the time, because agents can certainly get um, their morale can certainly get worn down by, the, you know, they hear um, a lot of times, as, as I'm sure you're aware, there's a vilification of the Border Patrol, there's a vilification of what we do, um, which to me is, is heartbreaking. You know, I, I remember when I was up in headquarters in 19 and, and even testifying about this, um, you know, while, while we were waiting to be appropriated, agents were bringing in diapers from home, you know, and bringing in baby food from home and bringing in toys and games from home. Um, while at the same time, people are vilifying us for what we're doing, you know, and, um, it, it's, um, you know, that, that has always been an issue that I, I try to get people to understand that, that um, ultimately, you know, when someone comes into our custody that has crossed the border between the ports of entry, um, it's only our job to determine what pathway they go into, you know, what's the appropriate legal pathway for them to go into. Ultimately, if they're found that they have... Um, reason to stay in the United States or, or no reason to stay and, and they're going to be removed from the United States, neither one of those is a win or a loss for the Border Patrol. That's, that's an immigration judge, that's CIS, that's everybody else. Our job is just to get back out there and secure the border and know what's coming across that border, you know, and know if it is um, a migrant that is, um, you know, moving for economic reasons or for whatever reason, persecution, um, or is it someone that intends to harm us, intends to harm the United States? Is it, is it, is it a criminal? Is it a sex offender? Is it a rapist? Is it a murderer? Um, you know, or is it, again, someone that has ill will towards the United States and, and wants to carry out an attack against the United States? That's, that's where our focus has to remain. And I think um, the challenge is, is to, uh, to, to ensure that agents focus on that and don't get, don't get distracted by the noise around us, you know, the, the, the constant vilification or, um, you know, everything else. You know, obviously, um, I think, too, and, and I see this in, 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 in Tucson literally every day, is 
the tremendous, tremendous humanitarian work that Border Patrol agents do that nobody sees. And, um, you know, I wish I had my, my stats with me, but I, I know this fiscal year we're, we're well up over 2,500 rescues in Tucson. And, you know, you spent time in Tucson. You know, a rescue in some places is, you know, driving a UTV out to someone who's, you know, in and out of consciousness because of the heat and um, their rescue, which obviously is fantastic. A lot of times in, in Tucson, that's putting a Blackhawk helicopter right up against the side of a mountain at eight or 9,000 feet and agents roping out of the helicopter uh, to get to someone that has a compound fracture, um, you know, putting them into, into a, um, a litter. A litter. Yeah. yeah, and then basically riding the litter with them to, to provide aid to them while they're being taken to somewhere where more advanced medical care can come to. You know, we've got hundreds of hundreds of EMTs and paramedics in Tucson that are out there every day saving the lives of people that are crossing the border. You know, of course, they're also, you know, there to help other agents. They're certainly there to help the public as well. Um, but I think very often the humanitarian part of what we do gets, again, gets lost in the noise, especially in the vilification, you know. When, when that helicopter goes up against the side of that mountain, Every agent in that helicopter and the Air Marine personnel or whoever's flying for us, you know, it could be Pinal County, it could be Arizona DPS, they're all in danger. They're all risking their lives to save a person that that decided they were going to cross the border illegally and then get up 8,000, 9,000 feet in the mountains to make that journey and to avoid detection. So um, I don't think that that is recognized nearly enough. And I think it's incredibly important. I think that um, you know, there, there's a vision of us maybe that's a little bit sort of like automatons and we just do this. Um, you know, we are all fathers, sons, brothers, daughters, mothers. You know, we all get it. We're, we're all human beings. We, we all understand the humanity of, of, of what we're dealing with. And we will risk our lives to save those people, you know. And we've had agents, as you know, we've had agents drown. We've had agents die. Um to save people that, that, that are crossing the border. So I think that's very often lost. And, uh, you know, I, I do, you know, know the Academy here has the, the silent partner program, which is one of my favorite things that's happened in the Academy where agents, you know, have that card in their pocket of an agent. And, and you know, to have, you know, my silent partner is, is Earl Roberts, who was um, killed by uh, liquor smugglers up in, <laughs> up in Michigan, um, you know, during prohibition. But, some of those agents are carrying cards of agents that have died in the line of duty trying to save somebody else in the desert, you know? And I just think those those two things are um, incredibly important to me. Yeah, so that part of cards uh, is obviously near and dear to my heart as well. Um, for context, what we do in the set of partner cards is uh, take the synopsis, the date of death, the uh, years of tenure, et cetera, put them on a, a small laminated card mm -hmm. and issue those out to trainees to kind of just to your very point indoctrinate them not as a pejorative right but indoctrinating in the culture of humanitarian response um, we are we are charged with a serious mission and along a part of that mission is also saving lives it's also a willingness to give your life um, should that should that be called you you be called upon to do mm -hmm. that um, and we don't take that very lightly here that we use Border Patrol Academy when we start from day one to kind of socialize that. So I do want to wrap it up. A um, couple of things I kind of just to put a bow on things. Uh, some themes that I heard throughout this. Number one, uh, fall in love with the process of developing as a leader. Mm -hmm. 
think that was uh, pretty rich throughout the entire conversation. Um, number two, don't be afraid to take an unconventional path. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's path is the same. And it, there's no right or wrong way to do it. Just work really hard in the jobs that you've been asked to do and good things will happen. Um, and then number three, uh, as an overarching theme, um, don't forget the mission you signed up for, the oath you know you took to the Constitution, and don't allow um, the reality of the perception of politics impact the way you uh, execute the mission that, that you signed up to do. I think those three things kind of really uh, encapsulate uh, our time today, and I'd like to uh, thank you for coming all the way out from Tucson sector in lovely Tucson, Arizona to Eastern New Mexico uh, to engage as a mentor with the next generation of Board of Trojans. It's vitally important uh, to me, as you know, so thank you very much for that. And uh, with that, honor first.